chapter 6. The Prophecies We've learned that the price of sin in the Old Testament was incredibly high. The Israelites had to sacrifice a perfect lamb, a most prized possession, to atone or make payment for their sins. We know God did not set up this system of sacrifices just to freak the Israelites out. He set it up to help them understand the magnitude of their rebellion against Him. He wanted them to know their sin was punishable by death. It wasn't something for them to brush off with a simple, dang it, I should have listened to God. Sin wasn't something God could gloss over either. He told the Israelites, For the life of a creature is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Leviticus 17.11 God longed to restore his people to a right relationship with him and remove the penalty of death. But sin was egregious and payment was required. For the Israelites, that payment was the shedding of the blood of an innocent little lamb. That was the sacrifice that restored their relationship with God, and they practiced that ritual for hundreds of years. The Messiah. If you choose to become a little bit of a Bible nerd and take the time to analyze the stories of the Old Testament, Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, Moses and the burning bush, and so forth, chances are you'll begin to notice that from the beginning of human history to the end of the Old Testament, God repeatedly used stories and illustrations to hint that a Messiah was coming. The Messiah or Savior was someone who God promised would one day come and take away the sins of the world, John 1.29. The Old Testament stories weave in the idea of the Messiah like a thread that foreshadows what is or rather who is to come. The Old Testament is full of references to this Messiah, this Deliverer, who was supposed to come and change everything once he arrived. People were to be set free from their sins and the burden of the law. The law would still be around, but the Messiah would somehow fulfill it. This meant the Israelites would no longer have to sacrifice farm animals. The Messiah's most astounding accomplishment was going to be the transformation of humanity's relationship with God. When the Messiah came, all of humanity would be able to interact with God in an entirely new way. No longer would the people have to connect with God through a priest, but they could connect with God directly through the Messiah. The Messiah was to embody the spiritual promises of hope, blessing, justice, and protection. Everything would be wrapped up in him. Salvation and eternal life would no longer be found in the sacrifices of atonement, but through the Messiah himself. Prophecies We touched on prophets in the last chapter a bit, but in case you need a reminder, prophets were people who God supernaturally communicated with. Their job was to share God's message with the people. The prophets spoke about the coming of the Messiah hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever came. They shared extraordinary details about him from where he would be born and his lineage to how he would suffer and die. Over 350 of these prophecies in the Old Testament points specifically to the Messiah. They're not broad or vague like horoscopes or Nostradamus predictions. The prophecies about the Messiah are remarkably precise. I won't go into each and every one of the 350 prophecies for both of our sakes, but you can read some of them for yourself and locate them in scripture using the table on the next page. For thousands of years, over and over the prophet said, Listen guys, the Messiah is coming. Here are the details. Keep your eye out for that guy. And when all of these events take place, and when all of these qualities are embodied within one person, that is the Messiah. Not only would the detailed descriptions of these prophecies help them recognize the Messiah when he came, but they also offered the Israelites a sense of hope that lasted for generations, a hope that promised a Messiah would one day come to deliver them from oppression and injustice. 
prophecy, born of a woman rather than an angel or other celestial being. Scripture, Genesis 3.15. Prophecy, born in Bethlehem. Scripture, Micah 5, 1 and 2. Prophecy, born of a virgin and called Emmanuel. Scripture, Isaiah 7.14. Prophecy, lived in Egypt for a season. Scripture, Hosea 11.1. 1. Prophecy, children massacred at the place of his birth. Scripture, Jeremiah 31.15. Prophecy, rejected by his own people. Scripture, Zechariah 11.12 and 13. Prophecy, spoken parables. Scripture, Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Prophecy, declared the Son of God. Scripture, Isaiah 9, 6. Prophecy, hated without cause. Scripture, Psalm 35, 19. Prophecy, given vinegar to drink. Scripture, Psalm 69, 21. Prophecy, falsely accused. Scripture, Psalm 35, 11. Prophecy, stood silent before his accusers. Scripture, Isaiah 53, 7. Prophecy, sold, and the money used to buy a potter's field. Scripture, Zechariah 11.13. Prophecy, prayed for his enemies. Scripture, Psalm 109.4. Prophecy, betrayed. Scripture, Psalm 41.9. Prophecy, crucified with criminals. Scripture, Isaiah 53.12. Prophecy, bones would not be broken. Scripture, Exodus 12.46. Prophecy, hands, feet, and side pierced. Scripture, Zechariah 12.10. Prophecy, sacrifice for sin. Scripture, Isaiah 53, 5-12. Prophecy, resurrected from the dead. Scripture, Psalm 16.10. Prophecy, seated at the right hand of God. Scripture, Psalm 68.18. A modern illustration. Let's pretend for a minute that we lived in a part of a country whose professional sports team had not seen a championship in decades, and let's suppose that I had prophesied 39 years ago that a great athlete would one day appear to deliver the people from constant defeat, and I gave the athlete this description. He would be born and raised in Akron, Ohio. He would be a child prodigy. People around the world would know of him. He would have a basketball in his hand. He would migrate to a city in the north near a great lake. He would then travel south for four seasons but return home. He would be strong, accurate, and fast. He would take on the great enemy from the west in a seven-game battle. He would seem defeated before making history with a remarkable comeback in which he would conquer his rival. If you know even a little bit about professional basketball, you will recognize that the athlete I prophesied is none other than the legendary LeBron James. Because I had described him in such detail, and because you've seen these specific events unfold, LeBron would be easy to spot as our basketball deliverer, and everyone would cheer. The prophecies about the Messiah worked in the very same fashion. The prophet Isaiah. You may have noticed that many of the prophecies listed in the table came from the prophet Isaiah and the attention he spent on the details of the Messiah's suffering, death, and willingness to do so is fascinating, at least to me. Of course, some people did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, but let's think about what if anything Jesus would have stood to gain by faking it. For instance, who would ever want to impersonate the Messiah knowing such agony came with the part? If anything, the Messiah's willingness to suffer and die only makes him that much more credible. Isaiah had no idea who this Messiah would be or what was going to happen to him, but he knew this much. 
Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, Isaiah 52:14. Something would rip his flesh and mutilate him beyond recognition. When the people saw a man suffering to that extent, they would know he was the promised Messiah. Isaiah also describes the Messiah's physical appearance. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, Isaiah 53.2. According to Isaiah, the Messiah would be your average, everyday, working-class individual who drew little to no attention to himself. Neither his looks nor his talent would turn any heads. Why would Jesus fake being the Messiah just to live an ordinary life? Isaiah continues, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem, Isaiah 53.3. What would the Messiah do to evoke such hatred? Was it something he would say or represent? Isaiah didn't know, he just prophesied it would be so. The Messiah's life was going to be extremely hard because even his family and neighbors did not appreciate him. The elites of his time would despise him. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, 4, though 5. The Messiah would be pierced. Why? For us... For our rebellion, our rejection, our sin, he would endure the punishment that our sins deserve. He would intercede on our behalf. The word intercession is a fascinating word. In modern vocabulary, we would use the words mediator or conduit. Intercession is like a mix of those two ideas, a mediator of a conduit. The Messiah would bear the sins of many and become the mediator between transgressors and God. To get to God, all of humanity would need to go through the conduit of this Messiah. He was the path to God. He was the one who would make interaction with God possible again. It's almost as if Isaiah said, Listen, ancient Jewish people, when you see all 350 of these detailed prophecies come together in one person, you will know he's the promised Messiah. When an innocent man is executed and then rises from the dead, you will know. He will be the one you have been waiting and hoping for all these generations. He is the one you need to believe in and follow. He is the key to forgiveness of sin. He is the key to salvation. The Lamb Remember the little lamb from Leviticus 17. The lamb hadn't done anything to warrant its slaughter. But because the Israelites rebelled against God and a penalty had to be paid, the punishment went to the lamb. The lamb was innocent, the people were guilty. The lamb was punished, the people received peace. The lamb was sacrificed, the people were forgiven. The lamb died and the people were healed. It was the lamb that was punished first for what the people had done. But the Messiah would come to receive the punishment for all the sins of humanity. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, Isaiah 53, 6-9. 
The Messiah would be unjustly punished, marred beyond human recognition despite his innocence. People would recognize the injustice of his execution, yet nobody in his generation would defend him. He would remain silent like a sheep before it is sheared. His death would not be from natural causes, an accident, or an illness. His execution would be intentionally and purposefully carried out according to God's plan and God's will. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Isaiah 53.10 God wanted this to happen, and had, in fact, planned it from the very beginning to redeem mankind. The Messiah would agree and willingly participate in God, the Father's plan. He would die a criminal's death, surrounded by criminals, Matthew 27:38, and be buried in a borrowed rich man's tomb, Matthew 27:57 through 60. He would cooperate with God's plan and offer his life in exchange for humanity's eternal life. The sacrifice of the Messiah is mind-blowing and harkens back to Leviticus 17, 11, which says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's almost as if God took his lamb, his most precious possession, and brought it to the altar of atonement to shed its blood as payment for the sins of the world. This Messiah would be God's atoning sacrifice. He would be blamed like the innocent lamb in Leviticus and take on the sins of humanity. Of the Messiah, Isaiah 53:12 says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's imagine now that we are ancient Jewish people reading the prophecies and trying to get a handle on them. We understand now that the Messiah, the Lamb of God similar to the Lamb we bring to the temple, is going to be the atoning sacrifice. He is going to willingly pour out his life, not kicking and screaming, but participating in God's will for the atonement of sin. The Lamb of God was innocent, but would take the blame and become sin for us. He would not lose his life, he would offer his life escape and distraction. People go to church for a number of reasons, but probably the biggest reason they attend is because they're in search of help and hope. This is normal. We all experience difficulties, losses, stressors, and tragedies that leave us lost and depressed. In our culture, we are taught that when we need help and hope, we need to escape. We need distraction. We should jump in our car and take off or binge watch Netflix. When I'm under stress and in need of a break, my preferred escapism usually involves the woods and better yet a four-wheeler. I like to get away on my own, hang out with a few friends, or watch a good movie. I don't know what it is, but there's something about one alien robot blowing up another alien robot that just relaxes me. We all need a way to escape sometimes, and the people who lived during the time of the Old Testament were no different. Sure, their problems played out differently than they would now, but they experienced the same types of problems that you or I do. Stress, frustration, marital challenges, political concern, financial woes, etc. The problem with escapism and distraction, however, is that reality is always crouching at the door just waiting to pounce. Humanity needs someone bigger, someone greater to take the load. We need someone who not only gets people's minds off things for a few hours, but someone who could also change the dynamics of their entire lives that is the purpose of the Old Testament. It's not to offer tips on how to escape. It points to a deliverer, a Messiah who would be the Savior, not just a temporary fixer. 
In fact, maybe when people long for escape, they're really longing for a messiah. Mind you, I am still all about movies and woods, they're relaxing and fun. But maybe when our heads are clear, and if we set our hearts on knowing and finding the Messiah, we can come away from the stress and the distraction with a game-changing plan in place. Just a thought. God's Motives The Messiah is most characterized by his willingness to suffer and die. He poured out his life for you and me. I don't know about you, but the selflessness of his sacrifice encouraged me to reconsider my ideas about God and his motives. Trusting his motives helped me to understand his desire was not to control my life, keep me from having fun, or just take my money. Maybe his motives are pure. Maybe we can trust him. Maybe we can embrace this Messiah. Maybe if we read the Bible, we can understand God differently. You've met the Messiah in this chapter, and you'll decide what to do with him. In the next chapter, I'll tell you all about who he is. I know it's a cliffhanger, so I'll give you a hint. His name starts with a J, and it's not Jeff. headspace. Connect with God. Okay, so let's review and take a look at the big picture of the story of the Bible. We've learned so far there is a creator God, and his perfect standard for humanity is a byproduct of his nature. Because he loves us, he has not forced us, but has given us the choice to love him and live in a loving way as he does. Because he is just, he will not let evil and bad deeds take over his creation. He punishes evil and will make sure that no bad thing goes unpaid for. But this perfect God who has given us choice also knows that being perfect is not going to happen on our own. So he provides a Messiah, someone who is perfect and can pay for our sins, taking our place. God also knew that we can't believe every word from every person on the planet. So he himself spoke to prophets. They recorded God's words, telling humanity what to look for in the Messiah so we could be sure it was from God and not made up by humans. So if all of this is factual and actually happened, this God is really amazing. If all these prophecies were really fulfilled by God, our worldview can't help but change. What new things have you learned about the God portrayed in the Bible so far? What things, if they are true, might change the way you view God or interact with Him? Connect with others. Have you ever noticed yourself looking to something outside of you to fix you? Sure, there are lots of things we can achieve on our own learning a sport, bringing grades up, or earning that promotion, but maybe you have realized that you need something outside of you to make your life better. If I could just find a boyfriend or girlfriend who would, if my spouse would just, if I could just get my kids to, I can't achieve this success without. When we find ourselves looking to something to save us because we don't feel we have what it takes on our own, it's usually a spiritual longing. We put our hope in a person, thing, or situation when we sense things aren't the way they should be. Take a look at what the Bible says. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 2 and 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 3, 23 and 24. 
If I am not capable of saving myself from my sin and everyone else is just as sinful as me, then they can't save me either. These prophecies point to only one Savior. Speaking of the one who fulfills these prophecies, Acts 4.12 states, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only God who is greater than sin can intervene. Friends are great to have and certainly helpful in times of need, but they can't save our souls. Is there someone or something you are putting all your hope in to save you instead of God? Talk to God about the ways you look outside of Him to achieve spiritual longings and ask Him to transform situations that come to mind. What does this mean for you? God didn't go to all this trouble of creating a world, formulating a plan, and sending a Messiah just so we could celebrate Christmas or Easter. The Messiah was meant to be recognized and responded to. The Messiah did not come to clean up the world a little bit, slow down global warming, and help us implement more sustainable businesses, although he is probably a big fan of those things. He came to save your soul and my soul to properly meet our spiritual longings and satisfy the payment for our sin. Christians believe that God really went through all that trouble and wants to save us and be involved in our lives. What might you say to a God who loves you this much?